0: Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner, the Managing Partner of ACG Analytics. Welcome to today's weekly macro call. I'd like to hand it over to Chris Zerwinski our lead international analyst who leads the macro effort. He's here with Bart Oosterveld. Bart joins ACG Analytics, as most of you know from the Atlantic Council and Moody's Sovereign Risk in London. Also on the phone is John East, our intrepid head of research.
1: Thanks, David. Thanks everybody for joining us. John, it's been a big week. You've probably spent a lot of hours examining what all the debate on Tuesday night, and I think that's the place I'd like to start. We talk a lot about whether or not debates have the potential to move the needle in the presidential election. This one was unique, probably the first debate of its kind in just the sheer level of animosity between the two candidates and and the lack of serious policy proposals. Can you give me your view, John, as to whether or not the sheer just ridiculousness of the debate actually matters in the long run for this election?
2: Good morning. Well, the one thing I I have to wonder in the back of my head is whether things like this are related to the rise in unaffiliated voters. It used to be that you had some, but now if you look at an average, not all states categorize people in terms of party registration, but... You got to wonder whether it pushes people to third party candidates or whether it leads people not to vote, which is equally important. But that being said, if you look at who won debates in the public's mind in the past, and then you look at who won the eventual election, there doesn't seem to be a correlation. So a lot of people think that Hillary Clinton won the debates against President Trump. She's not president. And this goes back to the first televised debate between Kennedy and Nixon. Going into that debate, it looked like Nixon was one point ahead or so of, of Kennedy, but that's within the margin of error. And then after that televised debate, the very first one, Kennedy rose about four points in the polling average, and then he won with, with less than 1% of the vote, also within the margin of error. So unless there is a sustained impact from a debate, then I don't see how the debate actually matters. That's not true for all debates. It's not true for primary debates. I wouldn't say it's true for all debates at the local level. I don't see a correlation at the presidential level between the debate performance and who wins the election. I, I think that, you know,
1: what they learn from and how they shape these next debates will be
2: will be very interesting. And
1: limiting the ability of the candidates to veer off on these tangents is something that uh, they're looking to do. Now, one of the key topics in the debate, obviously, is the pandemic that has been ravaging the country. But what these candidates and the president did not necessarily allude to is their thoughts on additional COVID relief president has obviously said previously that he would like something around $1.5 trillion out of Congress, and Joe Biden, for his part, said that he disagreed with the president's handling of the crisis. We're now at this pivotal moment in Congress where Speaker Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin are holding high-level negotiations over this, this next bill. The White House has come up to $1.6 trillion. That's the offer that was reported yesterday, and the Democrats have come down to $2.2 trillion. This obviously has caused for optimism. We saw it in the markets yesterday, and we see expectations slowly starting to rise that we are, in fact, going to see a package. You have repeatedly throughout this process said, I want to see material progress to actually change my viewpoint. Are the developments over the last 24, 48 hours enough for you to begin to change your mind as to whether or not we do get a package?
2: Yes. So we put out a piece a week ago or so, and we listed six things that could change our view. This is number one, which is the negotiators meeting face to face. So that is progress. It is not clear that we're going to get a deal today. It's not clear if we get a deal between Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and Speaker Pelosi that we will uh, be able to get a deal past Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell because he doesn't really want to divide his caucus ahead of the election. But there are enough votes in the Senate, even on the Republican side, together with Democrats, to pass a bill. There are a lot of people who want to get something done. And that's even true of many House Republicans. If the House goes to vote today on the original Pelosi package that was almost brought to the floor last night, then I expect it will get at least a few Republican votes. The House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, has said that he's interested in a bipartisan deal, too. So you really have all sides firing except for a divided Senate Republican caucus. But do not necessarily expect a deal today because the House can be recalled into session with 24 hours notice. So there is not a time pressure for today to get
1: the deal done. You mentioned that they were supposed to hold a vote last night. That was incredibly interesting to me in that Speaker Pelosi very rarely changes her mind once she announces something publicly. And she had announced that we were going to move forward with the vote. That, to me, signals a certain level of positivity that we have not seen in the negotiations yet. Obviously, the numbers are still not there, right? We still have around $600 in funding to breach. But interesting, too, as part of the Republican proposal was this escalator clause that could bring the total funding up to two trillion in the event that a second wave of coronavirus is worse than expected. Do you think that that is something that changes the calculus?
2: Well, you know, I am very interested in that proposal, but I do not know the mechanics of it. Well, all we have is a phrase escalator clause. I don't know how much of a gimmick that would be being around working in DC for 20 something years. I'm used to gimmicks. And I don't think many people are fooled by them, and I don't think McConnell is fooled by them. But maybe it's not a gimmick. Maybe you can make some type of ironclad escalator clause. I'm a little bit doubtful, but if you could, that might get around some of the Republican objections.
1: What about the state and local funding? I think that the Democratic
2: proposal did
1: come down from, you know, 750 to 1 trillion. It's now at or around 500 billion, whereas Republicans are still you know around half that. Not necessarily the best precedent that we want to set bailing out states with bad budgets or municipalities that you know have poor fiscal management, but is is that something where the
2: Republicans could give in, you know, come up to around 400 billion for example? No, I think that's going to be tough. I, I actually think that the state and local funding is a, is a real problem for Republicans and I understand why they've come up from around 150 billion in state and local funding. Of course, 150 already went out and it hasn't all been drawn down. So that's another problem with putting out more when not all of it has been drawn down. But uh, 250, I think is probably roughly where we would have to stick. I think it would be hard for McConnell to say that a $1.5 trillion bill is too much because the, the Senate already approved something along those lines. Of course, it's gone down since then, which is not a good sign. But the escalator clause idea, I think, is going to be a sticking point, And we don't have any clarity on how the mechanics of that would work. So we'll be watching here to see a couple things today. What is the
1: outcome of further talks between Pelosi and Mnuchin? So that's number one. Number two would be any further detail as to the Republican proposal, the White House proposal, I should say. On the escalator clause you know what actually does it mean and then three any other further comments from senate leadership for example mitch mcconnell as to where he's thinking yesterday i I was put off by his comments where he said that they're still far apart you see treasury secretary mnuchin pelosi speaking but if you don't have mitch mcconnell's buy-in as you said then it's really difficult to see anything moving forward because he's unlikely to move a bill without at least a
2: majority of the republican support so I do think that the sticking point is still the Senate Republican caucus and McConnell, although I would say I think McConnell's comments that were still very far apart were taken a little bit out of context. And I think he was referring to the bill that Pelosi is bringing to the floor and not to this negotiated deal. And it's been reported okay. in a way that I think is somewhat misleading.
1: Okay, that's, that's good color. I appreciate that. Now, I want to shift outside to Bart Osterveld. Thanks, Bart, for the heat map this week. You spoke a little bit about South Africa and some of the challenges there. In addition to that, you put out a very interesting note on the flip side for Colombia, Chile, and Peru as
3: to why they're well-positioned to overperform relative to their peer groups. Can you run us through... Yeah, thank you, Chris. So in our heat map publication, which comes out every Monday, we rank order the relative risk of financial distress to 75 emerging and frontier markets. Like you said, Chris, this week we focus on South Africa. In the global context, just run through the, the high level numbers. Two week growth rate in cases globally was stable at 14%. It had been declining for three months now. And I think it, this is the U.S. as a country kind of slowing down its growth rate significantly over the past three months, but that's Said for by every major economy in Europe experiencing a second wave, and, and growth rates, for example, in France growth rates are now 30%. So Europe closing in on a second wave of, of lockdowns. South Africa was really hard hit, has the most documented cases on the African continent. Partially, that's probably because they have the better testing system. They had a significant testing infrastructure in place due to HIV AIDS. So they they know more about their caseload. They suffered a 20% decline in, in government revenues and a significant increase in debt to GDP projected to rise to over 80% this year. Some forecasts have it going to 120%. And I appreciate that South Africa has a reasonably well-functioning domestic government bond market, but I don't think it finances itself at reasonable rates with 120% debt to TDP. So that's their medium term trajectory between now and say 2023, 2025 really bears watching. And it's a question, not if, but when they approach the international community for additional support, for example, to the IMF and the World Bank. And so we're, we're watching that closely. There's a medium term budget announcement on October 21st let me just pivot to the three South American countries that we covered in the note earlier this week. Yeah, economy is number four, five, and six in Latin America. So Chile, Colombia, and Peru, not close to a distressed situation. You know, Investment-grade countries, good debt management, low debt to GDP, by and large, and well-functioning domestic bond markets. So their caseloads have been very high on a per capita basis, uh, comparable to the US and Brazil. That being said, their growth rates are coming down rapidly. And I think if you take the three countries combined, they have the same population as Argentina and about twice the GDP, they're positioning themselves very well for being in the next round of inbound investment and economic growth. So their economic underlying picture is quite stable and strong, and I would expect them regionally to come out in terms of growth, in terms of economic prospects ahead of certainly Argentina, probably Brazil, and possibly even Mexico.
1: I want to go back to Europe now, Bart. The EU has begun its infringement proceedings against the UK over this internal market bill. It seems like the last couple of days there was a general sense of very, 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 very cautious optimism, but it doesn't necessarily seem like we've made much progress.
3: Yeah, Brexit is like the Beatles' magical mystery tour. It keeps giving us beautiful landscapes. They are talking this week in Brussels. It's a ninth round of negotiations. I don't make too much of the infringement procedure. The EU is just making good on a threat. It had asked the Brits to pull back the internal market bill by September 30th. The British ignored that and passed it instead, also in the House of Lords earlier this week. And so now it's October 1st, and, and the EU is just putting uh, some more weapons on the table, if you will, in order to force a deal. There's some progress on fisheries, most notably and a little bit outside of the headlines. The, the UK was able to strike a fisheries agreement with Norway, and that is relevant because the Norway-EU agreement is the template that the UK would prefer UK EU fisheries agreement to look like. And so uh, they are making progress outside of the headlines, other trading partners on trade deals, putting some pressures on the EU. There isn't meaningful progress on financial services and where that is headed at this point since we are in October and there's no way that there's going to be a comprehensive agreement by say mid to end October for everyone to agree, discuss and ratify is probably an extension of the status quo, as we've been discussing. So it'll all be with us for quite a bit longer.
1: This week, there's also an EU Council Summit. They're discussing a whole range of issues from pandemic relief to Turkey. Any expectations for progress there? Are we just going to see a bunch of, say, surface-level statements as to the EU's intentions?
3: tackling a bunch of complicated things. I don't expect agreement to break out on them. So you've mentioned Turkey. So there's a lot of tensions in the Eastern Mediterranean about gas rights and and exclusive economic zones outside of uh, shores. Turkey against Greece. And in addition, there's tensions on on Cyprus and with respect to Cyprus and with respect to Cyprus stance on on additional Russia sanctions. So they're talking about those. And then they are also presumably talking about rule of law issues as they relate to Hungary and Poland. So all those things tell me that they have every incentive to kick the can down the road. And so I think there's a high-level statement coming that papers over some differences, but I, I don't expect it to be
1: true. Thanks, Bart. And thanks, everybody, for, for that roundup. I feel like we've covered the world. I think that's, that's a good place for us
0: to conclude for the day. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.